The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and today is Thursday, so it's time for my regular guest, my good friend Dr Peter Hammond, I'm going to bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes I am, thank you Andrew. Thank you Peter, and Peter's got a, a wonderful presentation we've been talking about uh, before we started recording, but before we jump into that, we have an email, Peter. Show 1434 with Dr. Peter Hammond, How Treason Prospers. Hi, Andrew. I just thought I would say that this show is close to the best that the two of you have done together. I always listen to Peter Hammond because of his detailed knowledge of history and politics is second to none. He puts so-called Western journalists to shame. Indeed, Western society has been continuously betrayed over the last hundred years with disastrous consequences for the European race and culture. I hope and pray that those responsible for this treason are severely punished either on earth or in eternity. By way of example, the article below concerns the current legislation before the Victorian Parliament, that's in Australia, that will make it illegal for someone to counsel a teenager to think twice before changing gender. This is absolutely demonic and disgusting and is typical of the ideological war being waged against Almighty God and his son Jesus Christ and the divine order itself. Best wishes, David. And I'll read a little intro to the article. This is from Australian Morning Mail by Nick Cater, Daniel Andrews versus Miss Court on Morality. 26th of January 2021. On Friday, Daniel Andrews ripped into Margaret Court claiming her views on same-sex marriage were disgraceful, hurtful and cost lives. The same criticism might be applied to his government's handling of quarantine hotels, but that's another story. More pertinent was Andrews' opportunistic attempt to justify an ugly law that purports to prohibit gay conversion therapy, a practice he implied Margaret Court condones. She does not. Margaret Court is possessed with a profound Christian charity lacking in her opponents. In any case, the change or suppression conversion brackets practices prohibition bill is not primarily intended to outlaw a practice that almost every Victorian would abhor. It is a Trojan horse for activism of the most insidious kind. It is an attack on freedom of religion and parental rights by activists who regard the very existence of categories of sex and sexuality to be oppressive. So uh, there you go. Peter, have you got any uh, comments on that? No, really. 
appreciate the insights and and all the support there because yes, this is what you're basically fighting against. It's a war for Western Christian civilization. It's uh, uh, nothing less than that's at stake. Thank you so much, Peter. And um, today we've got a show for you entitled The Real Turning Point of the Second World War. So where would you like to start us off, Peter? Well, Andrew, I've always been fascinated with the Second World War because it does affect us all. And uh, my father was all six years involved in the Second World War in the Royal Artillery as a bombardier running a 25-pounder in the Western Desert Army, which later became the Eighth Army. North Africa, Italy, and so on. So uh, my father's um, recollections and experiences uh, always fascinated me. And, and my mother was a young girl in Berlin during the Thousand Bomber Raids. Uh, my grandfather was in the Africa Corps, and I had relatives scattered on all kinds of fronts, uh, Navy, Air Force, Western Front, Eastern Front, uh, all over. So um, speaking to uncles and uh, to my father and mother and uh, getting stories about Second World War, things didn't seem to fit uh, what they said, what they experienced, and what the official history book said didn't fit. And uh, then my first history school teacher in uh, high school in Rhodesia, uh, Mr. Rhys Davies, who's also a member of parliament, he said in our first history lecture in, in high school, beware the victor's version. Wartime propaganda morphs into peacetime textbooks you know that the English are lying about us now, the English government, about us in Rhodesia now. Why would you trust their version about the Second World War, the First World War, anything else for that matter? And in fact, it was true that at that very moment in 1970s in Rhodesia, we were fighting for our lives uh, on the very front line of the battle against communist terrorism. And the Soviet Union, Red China, were supporting the Marxist terrorists who were attacking our farmers our school buses, our churches, missionaries, murdering people uh, all over the place. And uh, that's why my brother was in the Rhodesian army uh, on call-up. And uh, I would uh, in time get my call-up as well when I was old enough to get involved in the war. And and so uh, wanting to know why is it that the government that my dad fought for in the Second World War is betraying us in Rhodesia while we're trying to fight communism how does all this fit? And uh, I've read some phenomenally interesting books over the years uh, on the Second World War, which, of course, give the other side. Um, one of the first was uh, The Last Secret, which was exposing uh, about the uh, Operation Keelhaul and the betrayal of three million Russian, Ukrainian, other East European people, mostly Christians, into the hands of Stalin's NKVD at the end of the Second World War in accordance with the Alta Agreement and, and others. Uh, the book um, Lusitania on uh, how much treachery was involved in that uh, too and planned from the uh, Admiralty and uh, in order to get the Americans into the war. So uh, there were different books that opened up to me uh, different aspects. And uh, uh, this book that I've just completed this last weekend uh, by Peter Padfield is called Hess, Hitler and Churchill, The Real Turning Point of the Second World War, A Secret History. Now, I've read quite a few books on, on Hess and uh, seen every video documentary one can. And uh, I'm, I'm very interested in, in the story of Rudolf Hess uh, for a number of reasons. Um, one of them being that his grandson lives not far from us. And in fact, uh, there's I was at a second-hand bookshop just a while ago 
uh, where I asked what's the most expensive item they've got, and they came out with a, a personal uh, signed copy of uh, Mein Kampf, which was, uh, in fact, signed over to Rudolf Hess. And um, I think it was um, um, uh, number two. And uh, uh, his grandson uh, lives not too far from here. And uh, interesting, there was all kinds of never published photographs. There's uh, Hess's dagger and a whole series of things uh, in this bookshop, which uh, his grandson apparently needed to sell for uh, just to be able to, to manage economically here. So a whole lot of family heirlooms. So interesting to just get in, insights. And now Rudolf Hess's flight, the 1941, May 1941 flight to Scotland, it's been one of the Second World War's greatest mysteries. And uh, I think that it's very telling and uh, staggering just how many lies have been told to cover it up. And what we've got in this almost 400-page book that I've uh, uh, just gone through, um, Hess, Hitler and Churchill, The Real Turning Point, The Second World War, Secret History, is an expose of so much of the false narratives and the lies and the cover-ups and the real facts. So just starting with actually a totally different book, uh, but to show how much we have uh, uh, received a lie and uh, and then why it's been covered up. It, it's so important. So uh, in, nine, uh, in 2014, John Harris and Richard Wilborn brought out a book called Rudolf Hess, A New Technical Analysis of the Hess Flight, May 1941. And uh, this book looked at things from the technical side. And the first thing that you learn is that the Messerschmitt 110, the 110BF, uh, which is a night fighter, twin-engined uh, plane, uh, really fast plane, it was not your normal one. It was a special one that had been made by Willy Messerschmitt, which had the most advanced engines in it, not the standard that Messerschmitt 110s would tend to have. Uh, in fact, it, it also had the highest level octane uh, aviation fuel that was normally kept for the fighter planes, uh, like the Messerschmitt 109s. But uh, modifications, very serious modifications that we made. This was the most advanced Meshmet 110 BF around. And uh, uh, the official story is that Rudolf Hess took off from Augsburg and flew to Scotland, to Western Scotland. Now, um, that, uh, according to the um, technical analysis by John Harris and Richard Wilborn, Rudolf Hess, a new technical analysis of Hess flight, May 1941, that story is impossible because the, there just was not enough fuel, even with external fuel tanks and so on. He could not have made that five hours and 24 minute flight. That's an hour longer than, than the plane could have possibly made. Uh, and he did quite a few backs uh, and twists and turns in trying to find the correct airfield uh, when he arrived in, in Scotland as well. And so that the... Uh, they actually analyzed the Messerschmitt uh, that Rudolf Hess flew. It's in the Imperial War Museum. And in analyzing the Imperial War Museum exhibit, which is the actual plane, the mangled remains of Hess's plane, uh, <laughs> Harrison Wilborn proved that he must have landed at Luftwaffe base in northern Germany to have the oil tanks topped up before proceeding over the North Sea. Uh, because... 
Uh, Augsburg is, by the way, if anyone hasn't checked the map, it's in southern Germany. It's it's way away from the coast. It's in Bavaria. It's in the southernmost part of, of Germany. So this business of taking off from Augsburg and not stopping to refuel anywhere in northern Germany or Norway is just not possible. Uh, and what they found was conclusive. They found that the hole in the fuselage to accommodate the oil field uh, feed pipe from the reserve tank was blanked off. The oil pipe connection is not in place. The fitting is covered with a sealed blanking cap. And this leads to the conclusion there were no external oil tank fitted for this flight. And uh, they have proven that without a shadow of a doubt, this was not one lone uh, crazed uh, individual doing something on his own. This was done with the full support of uh, the German government. And uh, there's there's all kinds of evidence which comes in in the book as well. But just the technical side is that the plane could not have made that five and a half hour flight, which history has told us we've got to expect that it has done. Um, it had to have been refueled on the way uh, closer to, to uh, northern Germany. And uh, they've got evidence for it. In fact, the evidence gets even more intense uh, quite aside from the fact that it was a special plane uh, that uh, that was particularly uh, kitted out and designed for. Now, normally, of course, a measurement 110 is a two-crew uh, plane. They've got a navigator and so on. Now, the fact that Hess was flying alone and he didn't have his navigator and so on, this, this made it even more difficult for him. And considering he was 47 at the time, he had never parachuted before, the evidence was that he was planning to land uh, the plane. And in fact, uh, he was, uh, because of the, in May, in England at that time, uh, and, and uh, even in Scotland, there would have still been uh, enough light to have landed in uh, up to half an hour or so before he actually parachuted out. And that he was heading for an airstrip. Now, uh, many people have assumed that he was actually going just to the Duke of Hamilton's castle, which also had a runway, but the runway wasn't big enough for the B-10. Uh, and so uh, the evidence now that they've brought out is that he was going to land on the Royal Air Force uh, Airport at Dundonald, which is just north of RAF Eyre. And in fact, he's very close to it. And they've got very strong... Uh, arguments for this because the evidence that's come out um, and there's there's huge overwhelming evidence is that not only was this flight done with the full knowledge of Adolf Hitler and uh, Hermann Goering and the assistance of the Abwehr and uh, the Foreign Office uh, that in fact this was at the highest level uh, supported. Obviously there's plausible deniability in any politics that if it fails then they all deny uh, uh, and there's there's this plausible deniability, but this this idea that he flew without support is is false because the evidence has come out that there were in fact two Messerschmitt uh, escorting the plane out of Germany and all the way over the North Sea and they abandoned just before he entered British airspace. That the negotiations had gone on at a high level in Britain, that the flight was being expected. Uh, the evidence is huge that uh, while RAF coastal defences and uh, uh, the observation corps uh, had had noted the entry of the Meshmet 
110, and as passed over Glasgow, there was uh, the anti-aircraft batteries ready to open fire, and they were instructed not to. And we had all the key players um, of the negotiation team were on site in northern Scotland at the very moment that Hess flew in. So the story that we've been given, that this was just some kind of uh, crazy idea of Hess on his own, and he didn't have the support of of the Führer, and that uh, this was... Uh, in, in fact, we have in David Irving's story on uh, Hitler's war, I recall how uh, he seems to have accepted from the Führer's official uh, reports what passed over the desk, that uh, he was shocked and he was uh, horrified um, by this and was in tears. And uh, that, of course, is possible because Hess was a person very close to him. He was his deputy. He had been in the Lundsberg prison together with him, been part of the beer hall pitch. They'd even been on the Ypres front together. They'd been in the same regiment uh, before Hess uh, uh, volunteered for uh, flying in the Luftwaffe and, and became a, a pilot. Uh, so uh, they went way back, and uh, there obviously was a close connection, and no doubt there was an emotional concern for him. But uh, the the pretense that he could didn't know of this ahead uh, has been, I think, well proven in this book, Hess, Hitler, and Churchill, The Real Turning Point, the Second World War, to be uh, play-acting and typical politics, plausible deniability when the plan seemed to have gone gone wrong. But there is huge evidence that that this was being negotiated at the highest level. That Hess did not just take off on the off chance of finding the Duke of Hamilton uh, at uh, his castle that night. In fact, he was on duty that very night uh, in the Royal Air Force over that very area. Not only that, but uh, the Duke of Kent, that's the king's younger brother, uh, the Duke of Kent was in the same area, and the evidence is that he met with uh, Rudolf Hess. Now, the Duke of Kent, who was uh, an air commodore in the RAF, and uh, there are the eyewitness testimonies of him coming through and meeting. Not only was the Duke of Kent present and uh, Duke of Hamilton, uh, but we also ha have uh, the head of the Polish government in exile, General Sikorsky, just happened to be in that section of Scotland on that night. Uh, and uh, uh, the evidence also is that he also met with Hess. And of course, being one of the um, allies uh, in the war against Germany and a potential ally in the war against the Soviet Union, which was coming. The timing of all this is extraordinary. So what we've got in this book, and it's, it's been quite fascinating to go through the, the huge amounts of evidence that this was known, this was known that it was coming for so long, there was no surprise about it. It wasn't a surprise on the German side. It wasn't a surprise on the British side. The British government knew this was coming. We've got evidence of Lord Bevan and others. Uh, days before, talking about uh, Rudolf Hess's flying into Scotland day after tomorrow, and we've got, uh, in fact, uh, even Winston Churchill uh, uh, informing uh, one of his associates uh, to prepare for the Duke of Hamilton uh, for him to be able to report back uh, the day after this. And there is lots of evidence that the uh, British High Command was fully aware. And this is why no one opened fire on uh, the BF-110. Remember, British uh, air defense was excellent in 1941, uh, not only the radars, but the coastal observations. And all worked, and they exactly tracked this measurement 110. 
They knew where it was coming from, knew where it was going, uh, tracked it all along. Nobody opened fire. And even though there were interceptors launched, uh, none of them opened fire on the measurement, which was disarmed. So uh, Rudolf Hess was flying unarmed in an unarmed measurement 110. Uh, there was no ammunition, no bombs. Uh, he was coming as a parliamentaire. He's coming as a negotiator on the highest level. And uh, he had on him... Uh, all kinds of documents, including the official documents written on chancellery, uh, typed on chancellery letterheads, uh, not only in German, but with an, a translation into English. And so the, the uh, evidence is that he was going to a prepared meeting. He was expecting to land at the runway uh, uh, at the Royal Air Force. This, they, he failed to, to meet that um, uh, a deadline, ran out of fuel, parachuted uh, out, was still very close. Uh, first time he'd parachuted in his life, age 47 and in the dark, uh, which is very difficult with the measurement 110. The speed that it was going was so great. The only way that you could parachute out is to turn the plane upside down and uh, release your canopy uh, and to then release your uh, harness so that you'd fall upside down, uh, gravity doing the work to pull you away from the plane. And even as he did this, um, his foot struck the tail end and uh, injured his foot on, uh, on the way down. It was a difficult, dangerous thing at the best of times to parachute from measurement 110, but that obviously wasn't part of plan A. Now, what, what we are dealing with here is so extraordinary because all of the evidence uh, that has been dug out, and it's quite extraordinary, the amount of cover-up, the amount of lies, the amount of denials uh, involved in all this, and you'd wonder why. And and why after the war, for so many decades, do they keep the silent? And then why is it that Rudolf Hess, who, after all, came as an unarmed parliamentarian, a serious negotiator, in May 1941, America wasn't involved in the war, Russia wasn't involved in the war, uh, and yet... Uh, he is coming over unarmed to Britain uh, to seek peace with Britain, offering, in fact, uh, amazingly good terms, which is all evidenced here, that uh, uh, why would he have even been imprisoned afterwards? And why was he never allowed to speak to an historian or journalist or a writer's memoirs or uh, be in any way debriefed, considering he was the second highest, or at least the third highest, if you put him just under Goering, but he was the deputy Führer, uh, probably in the hierarchy, he is number three, just under Goering uh, in practicality, even though technically he is the deputy Führer. But to have the highest ranking still alive person from the Third Reich, an eyewitness to many of the key things Second World War, how many historians would have benefited from uh, interviewing him, and yet that was not allowed, and he is kept in prison for 47 uh, years, uh, effectively, so that from 1941 till 1987 in Spandau prison, when he mysteriously dies, just as Gorbachev is planning to uh, allow him to be released as part of the glasnost and, and uh, perestroika, the openness. And so uh, at the very moment that the... Uh, that it looks like the lifelong campaign to bring about the release of Rudolf Hess, which has been led by his young son, Wolf Rudiger Hess, 
uh, and by many others who are saying this man is a man who tried to end the war. He's a man of peace. He should have got the Nobel Peace Prize. He certainly shouldn't have been imprisoned. And uh, why is he still being imprisoned? And so 1987, at the very moment that Russia's withdrawn their objection to Hess being released, and so Hess can actually be released on compassionate grounds, health reasons, old age. He's arthritic. Uh, he's uh, um, unable to even uh, fully dress himself easily on his own because he can't raise his hands above his head. And then suddenly he's meant to have hung himself uh, with an electric cord in the garden shed uh, at Spandau Prison. And this is all very suspicious. And what are they all afraid of? And what is there being covered up? And uh, this, of course, is, is the whole subject of, of this book and why it's called The Real Turning Point of the Second World War, because the, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. And uh, we, we know that uh, from testimonies of people who met him and who uh, saw the documents, uh, which, uh, of course, have disappeared, uh, but they saw official proposal of peace, numbered clauses, typed in chancery paper, separate translation to English. Now, Rudolf Hess, remember, was born uh, in the British Empire in Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, he, he was actually born under, under a British rule. Uh, he no, knew English well. Uh, but all the same, uh, he got a, a uh, Ernst Boyle to translate his letter uh, in the proposals for peace to the King of England, which was to be entrusted to the Duke of Hamilton, who is a steward for the King of England. And uh, uh, he also called his half-brother, a translator in the language service of the foreign ministry, to help him with the letter. Now, Ernst Boyle was fluent English speaker. He was born in Bradford. He was educated in South Africa. Why would he have needed assistance from his brother in the foreign ministry, except that it included such technical political language of a proposed treaty. And so uh, all of these evidences uh, that the pages that were brought in, which were officially documented at first and disappeared later on, uh, that eyewitnesses said they saw these documents. And we know from, for example, Kenneth uh, de Courcy that Hess's peace proposals, uh, which um, uh, he, he came and personally presented to the Duke of Kent. The Duke of Kent uh, met him. That's the, the uh, younger brother of, of King George VI of England at the time. That the first two pages of the proposed treaty detailed the plans for the conquest of Russia and the destruction of Bolshevism. And that Britain was requested to show her benevolent neutrality during this process by keeping out of continental affairs and uh, ending the naval blockade and the aerial bombardments, in return of which she would get to retain her empire, her armed forces intact, and Germany in return would agree to withdraw from all occupied territory in France, in Denmark, Belgium, Holland, Norway, and uh, Jews within German controlled territory would be deported to Palestine, which is under British control, uh, and there was a complete uh, cessation of the war in the West, that that Germany would evacuate all Western occupied territories with the exception of Alsace and Lorraine, which had been historic German territories taken by the Versailles Treaty at the end of the First World War. Uh, so Alsace Lorraine would remain part of Germany, but uh, the, the rest they would uh, hand over and they would withdraw back to uh, the secret line, back to the West Wall. And uh, basically a reset to pre-May 1940, before the 
the Western campaign. And so this, we know that this uh, is, these are the facts because these were also the terms which Dr. Weisnau had spelled out to Dr. Eckbert in Stockholm in September 1940, the same term. So Britain had had these terms offered to them 16 times before Hess. But on this occasion, after much negotiation and discussion, uh, right up to the British cabinet and to people close uh, to the king, right up to his brother, the Duke of Kent, there's no doubt uh, that Hess was coming. He is being expected. Uh, he was going with the full support of, of the German government. There's no doubt he had this specialized plane that had been modified. Uh, he had a fighter escort. In fact, uh, the, the evidence is that uh, uh, Heinrich, who is the head of the SD, was flying one of the uh, Messerschmitt 109s in the uh, escort uh, to uh, the coast of Britain before uh, leaving him uh, as, as just to make sure that this, uh, the deputy Führer uh, reached the British shore safely. And after that, he's in the hands of the British leadership, which included the RAF leaders in the very area he's flying over was the Duke of Kent and the Duke of Hamilton, who were both very supportive of peace proposals and the end of the war with Germany. And so uh, here's the intriguing, the, the evidence just keeps mounting, uh, but that the, the whole thing that uh, the summary that's put here on what was going on is the terms that he was carrying, uh, that uh, Hess was carrying, which, which came with a full stamp of, uh, of the German uh, high command, uh, the Abwehr, uh, the Führer himself, uh, would have given Britain peace with honor. Uh, and that, uh, to quote from this book, that uh, to bury Churchill committed to the defeat of Hitler and Nazism had to bury this message and write off the messenger. And in so doing, Churchill single-handedly deflected the course of history, for realists would have accepted Hess's terms. This is the real significance of Hess's story as a pivotal moment when history did not turn as might have been expected. Because at that very moment that uh, Britain was uh, in fact losing the war in North Africa, uh, that it had lost the war on the continent, uh, that uh, Germany was triumphant as far as the North Sea all the way uh, down uh, into North Africa. Uh, it was an extraordinary situation that if these terms of this peace treaty was known, the average British person would have wanted them accepted. The uh, Americans would have seen us providing the, the aid you want and uh, and uh, on credit and getting involved in this war, if you could have the liberation of France, Belgium, Norway, Denmark, this uh, evacuation of all these Western countries, a complete cessation of war in the West, and uh, uh, without any more loss of life, who wouldn't take those those uh, um, offers? And if you think of all the people who died after 1942. Uh, from 19, May 1941 on, if you think of the Canadians at Deep and you think of the uh, uh, everything that's happened in North Africa and the Italian front where my father was fighting or uh, D-Day and uh, uh, A Bridge Too Far and Operation Market Garden and Ardennes and the Battle of the Bulge and all the loss of life, the millions of people who died actually um, from 19... 
41 onwards to think none of that was necessary and everything that was achieved by the end of the war, which is the liberation of Western Europe, could have been achieved without any further loss of life from May 1941 on. It, it was an offer that could not be refused because who doesn't want peace and why would you not want peace uh, where you have peace without any further loss of life? And so it said that uh, fearful of what um, uh, the people in Britain would say about it, Winston Churchill decided to bury the treaty, to bury uh, effectively uh, Hess uh, in the uh, prison of war system. And uh, instead of treating him as a parliamentarian, he'd come over voluntarily with negotiations and uh, that he was being expected, that he was to be received as a, as a, a peace emissary. At the very least, he could have been detained during the war and released when the war was over. Uh, but to have tried him as a war criminal and had him tried by people that were not even at war with Germany at the time that he came over and became prisoner of war uh, in May 1941, the Americans and the Russians, for example, it just seems quite bizarre. But the the big evidence here, and there's huge evidences, is the amount of people who were involved in this and who knew about this who who were killed. So, for example, the Duke of Kent who, um, uh, along with, uh, uh, bear, bear in mind that his eldest brother, uh, uh, Prince, uh, well, uh, the Prince of Wales, who became uh, King Edward VIII, um, who abdicated in uh, favour of his brother, uh, George III, uh, George VI, uh, that uh, he later became the Duke of Windsor. The Duke of Windsor was, in fact, quite uh, sympathetic to Germany and had been very pro so much of what Germany was doing and publicly said so. Uh, he had been sent off to be the uh, governor of the Bahamas to get him on the other side of the Atlantic. And, uh, uh, but the, uh, the Duke of Windsor and his younger brother, the Duke of Kent, were sympathetic. And they had access, apparently, to King George VI, who was also aware of these negotiations. And there was a, a whole string of, of people involved uh, going all the way along to Admiral Canaris and uh, Stuart Menzies, who was head of MI6. Stuart Menzies was heavily involved in negotiations beforehand, and that uh, his opposite number, uh, Admiral Canaris of the Abwehr, and Stuart Menzies basically cooked up this whole idea between themselves mostly. There's a lot of evidence for that. And so extraordinary that shortly after the Hess flight, the Duke of Kent, Prince George, his Royal Highness, uh, the younger brother of, of the king, uh, died in a very suspicious uh, air accident. And so the Dunbeath air crash, uh, which occurred on 25th of August 1942, a controlled flight into terrain at uh, Eagles Rock near Dunbeath um, in Scotland, the, he was flying in a Sunderland Mark III, uh, which is one of these water boats, uh, one of these uh, airboats, you could say, it, it can land on water, and he is flying apparently to a mission to Iceland, but there's strong evidence that it was a flight to Sweden, and considering that he crashed on the east coast of Scotland, um, not the west coast, it makes it uh, more likely that they were not flying to I Iceland, as the cover story is, but probably to, to uh, Sweden, where there was apparently going to be uh, peace negotiations related to this. But at any rate, 
because of all that he knew, and he's one of few people who had met with uh, Hess, it's very disturbing that Prince George, His Royal Highness the Duke of Kent, died in this very suspicious uh, air accident where uh, 14 people died, uh, including the, all the passengers, which was the, the um, staff, the personal staff of the Duke of Kent. So the Duke of Kent being knocked out uh, shortly afterwards is suspicious. What's also intriguing is that the head of, of Poland, that's the uh, uh, head of the government in exile of Poland, General Sikorsky, was also in Scotland in the very area where Hess landed at the moment that Hess landed there. And the strong evidence is that he also met with him. And uh, it's intriguing that shortly thereafter, also General Sikorsky died in an extremely suspicious uh, air accident at, uh, uh, that was at Gibraltar, and on the 4th of July, 1943. And that, of course, came after the Catan Forest Massacre evidence had come to the surface as well. So there was multiple reasons why he was removed. And the evidence is overwhelming because to this day, the investigation into the aircraft is top secret and sealed. And the investigations into the crash affecting General Sikorsky, the head of the Polish government in exile, is also sealed and top secret. And everything to do with Rudolf Hess's investigations and interrogations and so on is also sealed um, uh, still till far in the future. And you wonder what are they covering up uh, when so many of these things, which you would think is just history, uh, why can't historians have access to these files? Well, the evidence has been put together brilliantly uh, in this Hess, Hitler, and Churchill, The Real Turning Point of the Second World War, Secret History by Padfield, and, of course, by Harris and Wilborn's Rudolf Hess, A New Technical Analysis of the Hess Flight, May 1941, that we've been lied to on so many different levels. And there has been an official cover-up that staggers the mind. And the amount of people who were fired, locked up, died, died in mysterious circumstances, uh, who were connected to these things, absolutely huge. And the conclusion uh, which, uh, which has to be reached is that it is still considered to this day a threat to the established order that there was such a serious peace offer made. And we know this peace offer was made multiple times, but to be made in person by the deputy Führer, Rudolf Hess himself, uh, in that very daring uh, flight uh, in the Meshmet 110 in May 1941, to come in Scotland, how much clearer was it that the seriousness of the offer, that he's coming in person, this isn't being done uh, just through Switzerland and Sweden and through the Red Cross and so many different ways that these peace offers had been made before, but being made in direct, in person, uh, with the full weight of a parliamentary, with official treaty, uh, that nothing is being asked of Britain uh, except uh, to stop the bombing of Germany, to stop the naval blockade of Germany, and to have benevolent neutrality in the coming war against Bolshevism. And all of these things have come out now to such an extent that there can be no doubt whatsoever that people like my father were being lied to, being told that we have to fight because we're fighting for survival, and we've got no choice. But in fact, we did have a choice because no interests of Britain were at stake, and even the 
benefits of Britain's immediate allies, um, France and Belgium, would uh, they would get all their land um, liberated, no more occupation, and nobody else had to die. The, the Western Front could have been won without any more loss of life or cost, uh, which bankru- bankrupted the empire. The longer the war went on, uh, the more the empire got got completely and utterly bankrupted, and we can see the end results uh, as a result of that right now. So uh, as I've looked at this book and I've gone through it, I've just been astounded to see the lies, the duplicity, the treachery, uh, but also to see the goodwill. There was there were a lot of people of seriously goodwill uh, in the British hierarchy, especially in the royal family, who wanted peace and who wanted an end to this ruinous war, and who could see nothing but but uh, evil if this continued, and the bombing of one of the cities and loss of civilian life, and also the destruction of Europe for the benefit of, of the United States of America and, and the Soviet Union, but Europe itself would be impoverished and become the battleground, which is what happened. And uh, so when you see that there were actually some very high-playing people, including the head of MI6, Stuart Menzies, who was involved in this, and, and Lord Halifax, uh, Viscount Halifax, was uh, also very much in support of, of this uh, peace offer. And uh, Sir Samuel Hoare, uh, who had a high uh, state positions uh, and was in close contact with King George VI, uh, was very sympathetic to, to this idea. Uh, there was many uh, other uh, top uh, leaders. And going through the um, uh, Colonel Stuart Menzies, of the MI6, he uh, and also Claude Dempsey of MI6, who's Assistant Chief of Staff uh, during the Second World War, they supported this. They were part of the negotiations uh, with the um, German government, with Hess, in putting this together. And there was even Karl Burkhardt of the International Committee of the Red Cross, who was working uh, in negotiation between Hess's department and these people interested in peace in Britain. So. There was actually a huge peace lobby. And the postscript to this all is that to think that they found it necessary to murder Hess in 1947 for no other reason than the Russians were now open to him being released. And the idea that to have him out where he could be interviewed and he could answer these questions and uh, give uh, help fill in gaps in some of the most mysterious issues of Second World War, that it's considered such a threat to even the existing order if we knew the truth about what happened in the Second World War, and particularly at this key turning point, May 1941, when how much clearer could it be than that the deputy leader of Germany flies in person, unarmed, in an unarmed plane to Scotland for an arranged uh, negotiation with a treaty that already uh, was worked out that we will withdraw from all occupied territories in the West and we ask nothing in return except for the fact that you end your hostility in terms of naval blockade and aerial bombardments and give us a free hand in the East. And Stuart Menzies, the head of MI6, puts his stamp of support in this saying that the real threat to Britain and the British Empire is the Soviet Union and Bolshevism and not from Germany, and therefore it is in Britain's best interests that Germany have a free hand in the East to destroy Stalin's Soviet Union, and that we should actually aid her in this, but we certainly shouldn't get in the way, and this is a cheap price for securing 
the liberation of our allies, France and Belgium. And if we can uh, get this, uh, there's nothing to be lost and everything to be gained. And uh, uh, that, uh, in fact, it would be in our best interests that Germany defeat the Soviet Union and destroy Bolshevism in its cradle. And this was the con uh, the consensus view of many top leaders, not only in British intelligence, uh, but also in the royal family. And the fact that it was seen uh, necessary to remove people like Prince George, the Duke of Kent, and uh, General Sikorsky just adds uh, more seriousness to to uh, why this lie to to um, to bury this very bold and dramatic attempt for peace, uh, how it's even important to this day that even in 1987, it was seen important to strangle uh, Hess to death. And so the, the post-mortem on Rudolf Hess uh, was uh, clear that uh, the, the neck injuries were consistent with that of strangulation, not of of hanging, because uh, the, the hanging uh, would, would give uh, a very different type of uh, a pattern of bruises uh, to what strangulation was and there was all the evidence was according to pathologists uh, not just the German pathologists but uh, the uh, eminent British pathologist involved in it that there's no doubt about it Rudolf Hess was was murdered and uh, uh, he was strangled and uh, the official views that have been given um, on this have just been part of a massive cover-up in fact uh, there's a book written uh, by Rudolf Hess's son, uh, the murder of Rudolf Hess. And uh, the evidence there is so large that there are even some of his, uh, that some of the people who were responsible for, for the protection of Rudolf Hess uh, on the Allied side who said they have no doubt that he is murdered, including his uh, uh, adjutant uh, who is uh, caring for him. So there's uh, the, the evidence is overwhelming that we've been lied to on every level. And it seems very sad because uh, Rudolf Hess is from all accounts, from Albert Speer and others, he is an idealist. He is a man of uh, uh, the highest ideals, even a soft uh, a personality, uh, that he was a sensitive person, uh, that he was absolutely traumatized by uh, the uh, war between Britain and uh, Germany. He was an Anglophile in that sense. He was very pro-British, uh, very pro the British Empire, having been born uh, in in uh, Egypt under under British rule, uh, understanding English well. He read many of the uh, English books, and he was therefore obviously an ideal person to be the negotiator. Who would have imagined that even after all the negotiations that had been made, and the communications and the communications evidence is overwhelming here. I think it's settled uh, without a doubt that uh, Hess's uh, flight of uh, seeking peace had the highest sanction in the Third Reich, and it was done with the full cooperation of all branches of the German government, uh, Luftwaffe, uh, foreign affairs all the way through. And the fact that they denied it later um, doesn't change the fact that the evidence is there. Uh, that the Red Cross knew about it, the International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, the British government, the Royal Air Force, uh, it was known to British cabinet level, and MI6 was key involved, along with the other of coordinating the timing of this. This was not a shot in the dark. Uh, this was a well-organized 
negotiation uh, attempt, and nobody could mistake the the uh, genuineness of here is the Führer, Deputy Führer, he's flying to Scotland, this is a real peace offer, and the details of the peace offer have now come out from so many different sources, including International Committee of the Red Cross, from Sweden, from Switzerland, and others, who had also transcripts of it. But now we know from personal testimonies, which are put in here of people who actually met with Hess at the time, and and relatives and uh, children of those who were involved in negotiations, what they were told, what they saw, uh, the evidence of what their fathers reported, and so on. So the Duke of Kent met him, uh, General Sikorsky met him, uh, from the highest levels there was interaction, and uh, Rudolf Hess's peace proposals were well received by many, and yet they were buried, literally, uh, by Winston Churchill, because he wanted the war to continue. So, back to you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Peter. And what really jumped out at me from his peace proposal was, uh, you know, we want basically what we Germans want to go after is communism, because that is the real threat. And that was the central tenet to, to, that I took out of your presentation. And I've got a page here from a website called truthfromgod.com. Uh, and it says uh, Jews created communism. I'm going to include this link in the post to the show. Today there is a lot of talk about fighting communism. The only problem is that the American people are not aware of who are the true founders and promoters of communism. If you had to find a communist, where would you look? Would you recognise a communist if you saw one? What do they look like? This article will give you a new understanding and knowledge about communism. Um, and there's all these quotes. Some call it Marxism, I call it Judaism. That's Rabbi Stephen S. Wise in the American Bulletin of May the 15th, 1935. The revolution in Russia is a Jewish revolution from the Maccabean, New York, November 1905, talking about the initial uh, revolutions that they were trying to pull off over there. Jewry is the mother of Marxism from the Droit de Vivre, May 12, 1936. Judaism is Marxism, communism from Harry Wotton, a programme for the Jews and an answer to all anti-Semites from the New York Committee for the Preservation of the Jews, 1939, page 64. It just goes on and on and on, and we don't have the time to cover all of these in the closing minutes, so I will include that. But that, for me, would indicate why Churchill uh, would not go along with his proposals. We know Churchill was Jewish through his mother, Jenny Jerome. We know that it was these people that bankrolled him uh, and allowed him to keep his vast estates. And, uh, you know, we, we've done several shows on Churchill, um, Peter, so you're well aware of that. Uh, your comments? Yes, uh, Churchill initially was one of the British politicians who recognised the threat of Bolshevism. And uh, right back in 1917, 18, 19, uh, he was writing and speaking very clearly against Bolshevism, the greatest threat, the plague bacillus. It's a, it's a new bubonic plague of the mind. This has got to be crushed. Uh, Bolshevism is the greatest threat to civilization. And uh, initially, uh, Churchill was actually very uh, complimentary of Adolf Hitler and what he was achieving in, in Germany. And that all changed, and I think it was 1935, when he was bankrupt from all of his loose living, vices, gambling, and so on. And the focus group came together to bail him out financially, but they were basically front people for the bankers. And the focus group helped focus Winston Churchill that he changed his whole focus from seeing Bolshevism as a threat to seeing, well, actually, National Socialism and Adolf Hitler in Germany is a real threat. And he 
no longer had anything particularly serious to say against the uh, the Bolsheviks. And we have the bizarre experience in 1942 where Winston Churchill met with Joseph Stalin personally, and he said, have you forgiven me for all the horror? And Stalin's response was, it's for God to forgive, not me. I mean, can you imagine can, such a discussion? Can you repeat uh, that Winston quote? Churchill, Sorry, you, Prime you Minister brought... of Britain asking the biggest mass murderer in history, Joseph Stalin, to forgive him for telling the truth about what Bolshevism okay. stood for. Uh, but that's the point about Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was a bought man after 1935, and uh, he wasn't a principled politician. He was someone who was uh, doing what he was told by the people who were bankrolling him. Thank you, Peter. And uh, that's important. Funny how they chose to drop the line just as Peter was reading out that quote. But thank you for reading it again. Um, yeah, very important, folks. Why would he do what he did? Uh, Peter, before we go, can you let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can get in touch with you? Yes. So uh, our Mission Frontline Fellowship, you can find on the web, www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. And uh, our email, mission at frontline.org.za, mission at frontline.org.za. I'm also on social media and love to hear from you. We've got quite a lot of evidence on communism, revolution. Uh, this is how these people work. We need to be alert. We've been lied to about the Second World War and we've been lied to now about just about everything. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Fantastic uh, show. Two weeks As, ago, sorry, I just played the wrong clip. Right, here we are. Uh, thank you so much today, Peter. Uh, great show as always. You have been listening to the real turning point of the Second World War. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'm, of course, the Batfield tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day. And bye for now. <laughs>